if this hymn had been written when John the Baptist was ministering here on earth, I believe he would have. Uh, it would have been one of his favorites. Uh, it exemplifies what we see of him here in our passage this morning. John chapter one, verses nineteen through twenty-eight. Hear the word of God. And this is the testimony of John. When Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of, of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet... John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Let's pray. Almighty God, I pray that you would um, bless the reading and the proclamation of your word. And as uh, John the Baptist did not point to himself, so I pray that um, that we would not um, focus uh, ultimately on him, but beyond him, to the Lord Jesus Christ. I ask in Christ's name, Amen. If you go into Barnes and Noble or into Books a Million. You're going to find a whole section of, of the store dedicated to self-help. In the self-help uh, section, you're going to find book after book that deals with your self-identity and your self-worth. In this sermon, I believe I can render most of that whole self-help section irrelevant especially as it pertains to the questions of self-identity and self-worth. And actually, it is my hope, it is my sincere hope, that you already have the discernment to know that all that self-centered pop psychology is nothing more than slickly packaged garbage. In John uh, 1, 19-28, we're going to see how John the Baptist viewed his self-identity we're going to see how he handled all this recognition and popularity and how he calculated his self-worth. And in regard to each issue, he defined himself not in relation to himself, but rather he defined himself in relation to Jesus Christ. John's whole identity was wrapped up with Christ. His self-identity, his self-worth, the way he handled the fame and popularity, and even every goal in his life, everything was wrapped up with Jesus Christ. More and more we're seeing uh, the media and other forces in our society 
portray Christians as mentally unstable people. And it's my contention that people who are able to look outside themselves, who are able to look to Jesus Christ, who are the most mentally stable and psychologically healthy people in our society. So, how mentally stable are you? How is your psychological health? In other words, are you able to look outside yourself and to Jesus Christ? Do you find your self-worth, your self-identity in relation to Him? John the Baptist had a great ministry. In Mark chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, it says that when he began his ministry of baptism in the wilderness, that, quote, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized him in the Jordan River. Luke 1.15 says that all the people were questioning in their hearts whether John the Baptist might be the Christ. And so with all this positive attention, You might think that John the Baptist uh, may have had a self-inflated view, um, a very elevated view of himself, but just the contrary, as we shall see. So with all the attention that is being paid to him, with all the people coming from Judea, all the people coming from Jerusalem and going out into the wilderness and being baptized uh, by him, the religious leaders decided that they needed to investigate, see what was going on. And this is where our text picks up, verses 19 through 21. So uh, if you will look with me again as I um, read these first couple of verses. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And I love his response, verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. In the strongest possible terms, he set them straight. He did not relish the idea for even one second of him being thought of as being the Messiah. He quickly and decisively declared that he was not. Then they asked if he was Elijah or the prophet. Uh, The religious leaders were aware that the book of Isaiah, also the book of Malachi, the last couple of verses of Malachi, uh, prophesied that Elijah the prophet would arrive ahead of the Messiah. But when when they asked, are you Elijah or are you the prophet? His answer to them was, no, I'm not. Now, this this causes a bit of confusion for us because John the Baptist is the forerunner of Christ. He is the one who came to prepare the way. And even Jesus said that John the Baptist was Elijah the prophet. So here he's telling the religious leaders, I'm not Elijah the prophet, but Jesus says he is. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 17. As they were coming down the mountain after the transfiguration, this is uh, Matthew 17, verse 9, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked Him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? 
He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So now, what is John the Baptist saying when he denies being Elijah? When Jesus is saying He is Elijah. Could it be that He was not aware that He was the Elijah that was prophesied? Well, He was well aware that He was the Elijah who was to come and prepare the way for the Lord. In fact, you look at verse 23 here in John. Uh, He makes that clear. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So, he's clear in his own identity that he is the Elijah who is to come, who is to arrive before the Messiah, who was to uh, make straight the way for the Lord. Now, he's saying he's not. Just so we're clear, John the Baptist was not the reincarnation of Elijah. That's not um, even a consideration. Rather, I believe what he's saying here, or, or uh, in terms of, Elijah, of, of John the Baptist, he believed he had an Elijah-type ministry. Just like Elijah, he was a lone voice crying from the wilderness. But when he was asked if he was Elijah the prophet, he denied it. Again, why does he deny it? He denied it because he did not want to become the focus of attention. He did not want to distract from Jesus Christ. His humility and his restraint is striking. How difficult it is not to put on airs or act super spiritual around spiritual people. John could claim for himself a great deal of respect from the spiritual leaders. Um, These leaders came out commissioned from the the Pharisees, the leaders uh, in Jerusalem to to come and examine him. And John the Baptist could have pointed to the strange events that uh, preceded his birth. If you remember back uh, to the beginning of Luke, uh, how um, his father, Zechariah the high priest, uh, was muted by an angel until John was born how uh, it was prophesied that John would be uh, a great prophet, but he didn't do that. He doesn't even give a hint of pointing to himself. There's not even a hint of pride in John the Baptist's response to these religious leaders. It's very difficult not to misrepresent yourself around the church. We like to imply that we are all spiritual giants. We like everybody to believe that our families are the picture of spiritual health when we arrive at church on Sunday mornings. We want everybody to believe that we have it all together. But if we pull back the the, uh, curtain and let everybody see who we really are, we would appear very different than what we put on. We put on airs. We claim to be who we really are not. Now, I'm not saying that we should air all our dirty laundry 
or that we should pull back the curtain on every thought that enters into our hearts. Confidentiality and personal uh, privacy are very important. But when we claim to be something that we are not, and we are claiming that because of pride, it is dishonoring to the Gospel. It is dishonoring to our Savior who spilled His blood in our behalf. Look again at John the Baptist. Listen to verses 22 and 23. They asked him, or they said to him, So who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He gives no title. He doesn't even give his name. He gives no hint of trying to impress them. He simply says, I'm a voice. I'm only a voice in the Lord's service. I have a black robe in my um, in my office. I thought about wearing it this morning, but then I, I realized that would be calling attention to myself and decided not to do it. But the, the reason the old Presbyterians used to wear the black robe is it's not... It has no ornamentation, no color. It's just a black robe. And it zips up all the way to your neck. And so all you see is the black robe and a head sticking out. And the symbolism was that the pastor uh, or the preacher is simply a mouthpiece. Just a voice proclaiming the gospel. That's all. And um, that's what John the Baptist was saying, I'm just a voice. I'm a voice proclaiming the Messiah. Make way. Uh, make way the straight the, the way straight for him. I'm only a voice, he's saying, in the Lord's service. Now to be honest, he does a little bit more than simply say he's a voice. He quotes the prophet Isaiah in relation to himself. But he does so only in the interest of pointing to Christ. I'm the one who's crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And so he's just sent by God to make the way clear for the Messiah. The religious leaders continued to question him in verses 24 and 25. Uh, in fact, I find it funny that he... He quotes Isaiah and applies it to himself, but the religious leaders don't even understand it. Um, they, he's essentially calling himself the prophet by quoting Isaiah. Yet they, they just fail to understand, and then their questions turn to baptism. So verses 24 and 25, Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Just a side note here. The religious leaders noticed that he was baptizing. And they knew that baptism was a clear sign that the Messiah was coming into the world. Yet the rite of immersion is never described in the Old Testament. The rite of sprinkling, however, is mentioned in relation to the arrival of the Messiah. Uh, Isaiah 52, 13-15. Ezekiel 36, 22-28 with the New Covenant promises. 
But here they see they see baptism. They recognize this baptism, and they know that the one who uh, that baptism uh, will commence for all the people with the arrival of the Messiah. And so John the Baptist acknowledged his ministry of baptism, but he he only did it to point beyond himself to Jesus Christ. Verse 26, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. Verse 27, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. His reference to being unworthy of untying the strap of Christ's sandal is very interesting to me. In the ancient Near East, students were slaves to their teachers. They had to do anything and everything the teacher asked them to do. They had to do the teacher's chores. They they basically were slaves of the teacher. But there was one thing that was so low that was so degrading that they were not required to do it. And that was to stoop down and untie the sandal of their teacher. To untie a person's sandals was so demeaning that they were not required to do that. But John here is saying something. Listen to what he's saying. He is saying it would be a privilege to be able to untie the Messiah's sandals. Yet in comparison with the Messiah, he was unworthy to do that, which was the lowest and the most demeaning act that a slave could do. John, uh, in pointing, in, uh, John the Baptist, in pointing to Christ, reserves no dignity for himself. He's saying that he is lower than a slave. This flies in the face of so much self-esteem culture in our society. To listen to the psychologists, John the Baptist could not have had an effective ministry because he was so self-hating, so self-loathing that uh, that that he couldn't very well minister to anyone else because he couldn't even take care of himself. That's not what's going on with John. Rather. What's going on here is he is so in love with Christ that he had a proper view of himself. Uh, I wrote down in my notes and I forgot to to um, to note uh, where I had found this, but uh, so someone said it, not me. Said no one is so happy or so free as those who realize that they are unworthy to un- to unlatch Christ's sandal. This is very important. Please note what John the Baptist is saying. He is saying he is the lowest of the low in relation to the Messiah. There's there's appeared a habit among preachers lately that if you're going to preach the gospel to someone, what you need to do is build up their self-esteem. You're so special. And you've got so many wonderful gifts. You need to come to Jesus so that Jesus can use all those gifts that you have and, and use you and, and all your special talents. But that's not biblical. What the Bible says is if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, 
he deceives himself. Here's the Apostle Paul's estimation of his own ministry in 1 Corinthians 15.9. He says, For I am the least of the apostles and do not deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Even Jesus Christ Himself in Psalm 22, which is a very messianic psalm, uh, said, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. He's not worried about his self-esteem. He's not worried about his self-worth. But what does this mean for us? Job 25.4 gives us a hint. It says, How then can a man be righteous before God? How can one born of a woman be pure? Even if the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes, how much less man who is but a maggot? or a son of man who is only a worm. The key to effective, to, to effective Christian living or to effective Christian ministry is to understand yourself in a worm-like condition. When we start in the, in the dirt, God lifts us up. We're sinners after all. We have offended God and continue to offend Him every day. We choose our own way rather than God's way. We take pride in ourselves rather than declaring God's glory. We live according to our own wisdom rather than according to His righteousness. Compared to the glory of our Savior, we are worms. Understanding yourself in this way helps you to understand the magnitude of the grace of God. What do you deserve? What do you deserve? Death. Even lower, we deserve hell forever. That's what we deserve. What did Christ do for you? He became sin for you. He died for you on the cross. He suffered the wrath of God in your place. He did everything for you. So how do you calculate your self-worth? Biblically, we are not worth dying for. But He did die for us. Your self-worth is calculated by the fact that you're sinners, unworthy of His love. Yet He so loved you that He died on the cross. Romans 5.8 says, God shows His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Can you see how this turns all this pop, pop psychology garbage on, on its head? You have tremendous self-worth, but not because you are worthy or because you are wonderful. Rather, God loved you even when you were a sinner. Many professing Christians miss Christ because they are so wrapped up in themselves. Many professing Christians get discouraged by their sins because they really don't believe that they are as worm-like as the Bible says they are. Many Christians misunderstand the grace of God because they do not know just how in need of God's grace that we really are. Even
even when we are at our best and at our most righteous, we are utterly in need of God's grace. As I conclude this uh, sermon, please uh, open your hymn books to hymn number 254. I'll have Dale come and lead us in a moment. But I want you to see the first line of Alas, and did my Savior bleed. This great hymn by Isaac Watts. This first line reads, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Do you know yourself to be a sinner utterly in need of God's grace at every moment? And do you know you have a Savior who so utterly loves you that He died on the cross in your place? Let's pray together. Almighty God, John the Baptist uh, stands as a beacon to us, but He points us to Jesus Christ. He points us away from ourselves. And so, God, I pray that in looking at um, His testimony and at His ministry, we would turn away from ourselves and see only Jesus. We ask in His name. Amen.